0: Welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. So another week, another big genetic discovery. On November 20th, 2013, a few days after I interviewed today's guest, National Geographic posted a story on its website titled... Great surprise, Native Americans have West Eurasian origins. An arm bone of a 24,000-year-old Siberian boy was found with what's called Native American genes. Scientists are now saying that perhaps one-third of these genes come from, quote, West Eurasian peoples linked to the Middle East and Europe rather than from East Asians as previously thought according to a newly sequenced genome. Let's pause here for a moment. Amid the genetic craze, some basic questions are continually evaded. What exactly do scientists and their popular interlocutors mean by origins? If human societies are constantly changing and moving, when exactly was this original moment? And what are Native American genes? How do you find them? And what are they being used for? These are just some of the important questions raised by Kim TallBear in her vital new book, Native American DNA. Tribal Belonging and the False Promise of Genetic Science, from the University of Minnesota Press. Interrogating the everyday assumptions and practices of genetic scientists and the clamoring public, Dr. TallBear finds that genetic markers used to identify indigenous people bear the imprints of the cultural, racial, ethnic, national, and even tribal misinterpretations of the humans who study them. Drawing provocative but persuasive lines from the early racial science to modern genetic practice, from blood talk to DNA talk, TallBear wants to know what impact this rhetoric will have on longstanding struggles for Native sovereignty, membership, and land. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Professor TallBear, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm so honored you could join me today.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: So today we're discussing your new book, Native American DNA, Tribal Belonging, and the False Promise of Genetic Science. It's just out from the University of Minnesota Press, and it's an incredible piece of writing, a vital intervention. Uh, There's so much to talk about, uh, but I want to start by asking you to introduce yourself.
1: Sure. I am an Associate Professor of Anthropology and Native American and Indigenous Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, I'm also an enrolled member of the Sisseton Wahpeton Oyate in South Dakota. But I actually grew up in uh, Flanders, South Dakota, which is another uh, on another Dakota reservation um, on the eastern side of the state and in the uh, urban Indian communities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. Um, I should probably mention, this will come up later in the uh, interview, that I was an environmental planner for tribes and tribal organizations and federal agencies for about 10 years before I got a Ph.D. And um, so that has informed my work.
0: Fantastic. That adds an interesting dimension, I think, uh, to my next question, which is to ask you about the genesis of the project. Um, When and how uh, you knew specifically that you wanted to tackle uh, this subject and, and your path to the publication of this book?
1: So I was working back in uh, 2000 and 2001 for uh, an Indigenous Peoples Research Institute in Denver, Colorado, and we did a lot of contract work for the Department of Energy. Um, A lot of the work that I had done before getting interested in DNA was related to the cleanup or the management of waste at the Department of Energy nuclear weapons complex, and tribes near those sites have some sacred sites and, and natural resource interests uh, in relation to the cleanup of nuclear weapons. And Department of Energy at that time just happened to be also funding the mapping of the human genome. They no longer do, but at that time they were a big funder, and they were, uh, we put in a proposal, my uh, organization and I, to look at the implications for indigenous peoples of the mapping of of the human genome, and I started working on that project when we got the grant and realized I was nowhere near equipped to really ask the kinds of questions I wanted to ask, and I started looking around for a PhD program where I could write a dissertation on what this book eventually came to be.
0: And where where did you write that PhD dissertation?
1: At the University of California, Santa Cruz, in the History of Consciousness program, uh, there are my two advisors. There, it was really a great opportunity for me. Uh, Jim Clifford, James Clifford, is one of them, and Jim looks at uh, different articulations of indigeneity. And then Donna Haraway is a well-known feminist science studies scholar, and so I was able to combine my interests in indigenous peoples and contemporary indigenous politics with an interest in the culture and politics of science and technology. Mm.
0: That actually anticipates a question I I want to ask later about uh, the combination of those two methodologies and uh, research toolkits. But I want to start to frame uh, the conversation um, to go to the subtitle of your book, which is um, Tribal Belonging and the False Promise of Genetic Science. So before we get into uh, why exactly it's a false promise, I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about the promise. Why has genetic science been... Uh, so attractive and popular to make it promising at all in the context that you're interested in?
1: Well, that's a big question. I think it depends on who you're talking about, certainly for the mainstream American public. And I guess by that, I mean, everybody who's, who's not native American, who doesn't have a real insider view of the Mm -hmm. politics of native American enrollment and identity. And that's, I'd say the majority of the country, we are a very small percentage of the population in the U S and I think unlike Canada, we're pretty invisible down here for the most part. So Um, there is a lot of interest among many Americans in finding a Native American in their family tree, and uh, your later questions probably anticipate this. There are some very interesting reasons, I think, around histories of colonization and racial formations in the U.S. that lead many, many Americans to want to find an Indian in their ancestry. Um, There are DNA testing companies that sell uh, tests that will help one find a Native American ancestor, perhaps, if they're there. Um, And so there's... uh, because I think most Americans think in terms of race and they do not understand the politics of tribal enrollment, citizenship and sovereignty, they for them, Native American identity is a matter of uh, one's biology. And I think this is also informed by the way that a lot of Americans think about ethnicity and histories of immigration. You will hear Americans often say, well, I'm part Irish and part French and part this. Well, they're thinking in terms of uh, uh, ancestry in Europe or ancestry in whatever other part of the world. um, that's not quite what we mean, right, when we talk about uh, Native American identity and citizenship. So um, it's a false promise in that uh, if one thinks one can find a genetic ancestry and then somehow become a member of a tribe, that's not the way that it works.
0: Hmm. Is, there, is there a false promise also from the side of indigenous governance that uh, you hope to address or discuss in this context?
1: Right. And I don't in the book, I begin to address the use of by tribal governments and Canadian First Nations of DNA parentage tests. And those are different than genetic ancestry tests. And we can talk about that later. Uh, Many tribes are using a DNA parentage test, usually to find paternity, but it can also be used to pinpoint other close relatives, uh, mother, uh, biological mother, cousins, grandparents. Um, in order to invoke blood quantum documentation or lineal descent documentation. So just in order to use those documents of parentages in question, a tribe might use uh, that form of DNA test. And there are different risks and different advantages to uh, a DNA parentage test versus a genetic ancestry test. And in the book, I try to describe the difference between those two types of technologies and the difference in terms of the types of people who use those technologies. Um, So I do worry... Uh, In terms of the DNA parentage test, on a case-by-case basis, I think this is okay in combination with other tribal enrollment criteria. Where I worry is when it gets applied in an across-the-board fashion, particularly by uh, tribes that have uh, very lucrative casino revenues. And that's usually when it happens, and then you end up with a big disruption in in tribal roles and disenrollments. So.
0: I was watching uh, in anticipation of our our conversation today. I was watching a video uh, of a talk you gave a couple years ago uh, on uh, earlier iterations of this work. And you started the talk by identifying two objects, blood and DNA, uh, which you called both scientific and metaphoric. Um, And I think there's a uh, a fairly widespread understanding, I hope, about uh, the metaphoric dimensions or qualities of of the idea of blood, uh, at least Mm -hmm. certainly more than there was at the dawn of... Uh, the racialized science or what you call, you know, blood politics Though that covers other fields as well. But I imagine, uh, in fact, I know from personal conversations, there are many people who would scratch their heads at the notion of DNA uh, as having metaphoric dimensions. Uh, they might say, no, this is something real. This is we're looking at raw, physical, unimpeachable data. Uh, what do you mean that uh, DNA has a, a metaphoric quality? So I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about that, what you mean by a DNA Uh, in its metaphorical uh, uh, dimensions?
1: Well, in the book, I talk a lot about the kinds of narratives, uh, longstanding narratives um, that condition the kinds of uh, DNA history questions that scientists are asking, that condition the types of language that they use to describe the peoples or populations they sample, and that condition the way that they interpret their science. And so there's a a couple of levels at which I think DNA becomes metaphoric Um, at that level. For example, you will hear um, narratives like, we are uh, all African under the skin, and that's related to um, this notion of mitochondrial Eve, so the oldest female human ancestor that has been found, having been found in Africa. And so from there, this whole story comes that, uh, you know, we all originated in Africa. Now, certainly there is material data to that effect, but what's really interesting to me is the way that Africa, as a relatively modern concept, Um, is invoked as a storyline to convey ancient human history. So, for example, we cannot talk about Africa. Um, as simply representing that landmass out of which, you know, ancient humans came. Africa is an idea as, as Mudimbe has talked about, that is conditioned by narratives uh, of darkness and backwardsness and uncivilization. Um, You hear geneticists uh, say things in the public eye, such as, oh, humans uh, evolved to become clever enough to leave Africa. Um, there's a really interesting way in which Africa is still described as primitive and backwards. um, And there's this linear narrative, linear evolutionary narrative told, in which as humans evolve, they leave there and they spread out to other parts of the world. So there are these stories that condition the way that genetic research gets done. And it's not just the way it's talked about in the popular press. It also conditions the academic literature as well. And I believe it conditions the hypotheses uh, of scientists. There's another level at which DNA is metaphoric. uh, I'm forgetting the name of the philosopher of science now uh, who talks about the uh, DNA as uh, as beginning to be described in computer code metaphors and so we have the DNA double helix as a form that's apprehended by Watson and Crick in 1953 and at that time uh, computer code metaphors begin to condition the way that, that DNA information is talked about. Um, she, she talks a lot about that in her book, and we still have those computer code metaphors. And so, one of the things that's interesting to me, and I think indigenous and Native American studies scholars sometimes make, make this mistake as well as non natives, they talk about genetic knowledge as if it's timeless. Um, so, you'll have somebody like um, uh, Ward Churchill. I know he's debatable as being a Native studies scholar now, but, but he has talked in, in the past about, um, uh, you know, missionaries uh, in the 1600s. Um, trying to uh, ascribe, you know, genetic purity to natives and their concepts of uh, how peoples mix. You can't speak about genetics if you're speaking about pre 1953, you know, because you're importing a contemporary knowledge form into the past that is not timeless. The words that we use to talk about molecules are not timeless, and I and I I caution people to be careful about that. So in
0: the introduction to your work, um, and, and this goes to a question of, of your field work, as an anthropologist and somebody who's trained in that, you, you have a certain um, arena in which you uh, make your observations. I, this is probably not the best way to characterize it. You're, I'm actually a historian, so maybe my view is not exactly correct. But um, you write that this work is not explicitly an ethnography of indigenous views of DNA testing. But that your ethnographic gaze is trained on genetic scientists, uh, the commercial enterprises and who you call the financially able lovers of genetic science. Can you talk about that decision to uh, make these people uh, your object of study, uh, which you say is somewhat of a, you know, it's going back to this idea of anthropologists studying something that perhaps is a bit more foreign to them uh, and and why you decided to make that your uh, area of focus?
1: Yeah, I was struggling mightily on a personal level with um, how to interview, do participant observation with other uh, Native people, and I had originally thought I might spend some time back home in South Dakota with Dakota and Lakota people, um, asking them about uh, DNA, talking to people who were language speakers about how we might talk about that um, the molecular form in our language and what that might mean, and that's a very interesting project, but I... Struggled with the ethics of doing that. I grew up, you know, between a couple of reservations in South Dakota and an urban Indian community, and I am the daughter of a planner. I wasn't just trained as a planner, my mother was a planner. For me, research and knowledge production has always been about change uh, in support of building our communities and institutions, whether those are reservation or urban. And I understood that that was the role of research from a very young age because I watched my mother do research, build alternative schools, build a tribal house. Housing programs, And so to come in as an academic, as an aspiring PhD, and to hand somebody an informed consent form and ask a bunch of questions that my community never asked me to ask, and that may not result in building any kind of community institution that would actually support Indigenous sovereignty, felt really problematic to me. And the Indigenous or Native scientist, uh, Native anthropologist literature, and there's a bit of it out there that talks about the predicament of being an insider, uh, wasn't really helping me out because that was really focused on how do you produce as an insider objective good knowledge that wasn't my predicament my predicament was is this going to really serve my community and did they ask me to do this and am I going to be objectifying native people and handing them that informed consent form well I started in reading in the science studies literature and there was a really important piece for me in addition to Vine Deloria's uh, uh, book Custer Died for Your Sins which had always conditioned my relationship to anthropology but I read Laura Nader's piece up the anthropologist and she's a Berkeley professor still teaching there. She published that piece in 1967 around the same time that Deloria published uh, his essay, Anthropologists and Other Friends. And she said in that piece, scientists need to study the cultures of power and it it, it it not just the powerless, not just the colonized. And this is also something that happens in science studies. Scientists or anthropologists, sociologists and historians of science study scientists and scientific practice as cultural practice. And so I was beginning to encounter these fields that were giving me a model to do that, that I was then able to couple with my my ethical sense, having come having been trained as a planner and having been the daughter of a planner. And so I thought I had this epiphany, which shouldn't have been an epiphany, but it it felt like that. Oh my goodness. I don't need to study natives just because national institutes of health and national science foundation want to give everybody money to study why the, the public's understanding of science. There's a lot of funding for that. I thought who, who's really creating the problem for us. Mm. We're not creating this problem. Scientists and a scientific culture and a mainstream American culture the, the settlers, colonizers, are creating the problem for us, and they always have. And so I'm going to study them. Why not study those who are creating the problem instead of going off and studying what some Indians think of the problem? It felt like a more explicitly uh, progressive political intervention. And it helped me get out of that sense of I don't want to research my own right now.
0: Hmm. And so you you mentioned in the book how you brought to bear uh, on the genetic science uh, that you observe and you comment upon uh, the frameworks, both of uh, native American indigenous studies, as well as feminism. Uh, And you mentioned this briefly earlier, but I'm hoping you can talk a bit more about um, bringing those toolkits uh, those sets of questions or however you conceptualize them uh, to bear upon a social realm where uh, they're not, they're not often, um, they're not often used to understand uh, a social phenomenon.
1: Um, Native studies and feminist scholarship together, Mm, you mean? Uh,
0: Particularly Uh, bringing those together on genetic science, on scientists, on on that kind of knowledge production.
1: Right. So, you know, I came to feminist scholarship through the side door. I am not somebody who studied first and second wave feminism, who has studied it in literature and who studied, you know, uh, the scholarship related to, to women and women's liberation. I began with feminist science studies scholars in particular with Donna Haraway and Sandra Harding. And, um... It was immediately clear to me that the critiques they were making about undemocratic science, hierarchies in science, um, the lack of a diverse uh, standpoint, so diverse uh, lives, um, diverse people examining um, the world through a scientific lens, that they were making very similar critiques to the kinds of critiques I saw indigenous peoples making about the power that science has over our lives. Um, the, The Way that it try it represents its knowledge as the one true, uh, one truth and one form of knowledge and so I felt that feminist scholars of science and technology had, however, done a more extensive job of theorizing um, power relations in science because in my uh, experience, Native American and Indigenous studies in the United States has not dealt enough with techno-science, And so we have a little ways to go in terms of developing a, a theoretical language to speak back to that. And so the feminist scholarship, in conjunction with a pro-sovereignty, anti-colonial um, orientation in Native American and Indigenous studies, those two things came together for me in a really productive way in my approach to this book. And I could not have written this without having had a foot in both of those uh, scholarly worlds. Hmm.
0: So I'm hoping we can walk through uh, some of the key concepts in your book. Um, In order to test uh, someone's uh, Native American DNA, uh, geneticists must first conjure what you call a faith in originality, that there is uh, out there, this pure, originary blood sample against which uh, people can make uh, contemporary contemporary subjects can be tested against that. Uh, what's wrong with this belief, in your view?
1: Well, I I don't think it's a they're not thinking about a a pure blood sample, although perhaps they are. What their faith in origins, and it's I think a largely unexamined assumption that there is a moment in time when you can find the quote-unquote pure Native that they're seeking to find in, they want to find a genetic signature in those of us living today that will point back to that founding ancestor. Um, But at which moment do you decide that you have that pure subject. And so it's really interesting, even though there's this evolutionary narrative that humans are all related, that the first, you know, modern, morphologically modern humans walked out of Africa. um, There's this need to pinpoint our origins as Native peoples in the Americas in Siberia or Asia, which I find really interesting. Why there? Why not back in South Asia? Why not back in in Europe or Africa? Why not farther back along that trek out of Africa? Um, so it's it's really it's it's quite interesting. And then to get to the human animal divide, why is our origin not pre-human, you know, because evolution is about change over time, yet there's this very anti-evolutionary sentiment that preoccupies scientists who do this work, I think, that's almost like the like they haven't completely left the creation narrative behind that moment of creation, that moment of emergence as a fully formed human. Um, So I I find that their language and and what they're searching for actually contradicts their, their evolutionary narrative in interesting ways. So, um, but in a more, let's move more up to a contemporary time. If one is out sampling, say at my, my reservation, Sisseton-Wapiton, and I've seen samples labeled Sisseton-Wapiton. So this is really interesting to me. There is, no way in which you can, see, can conceive of a pure sample there. We are, P, are different bands of Dakota people who were thrown together post-1862 after the war in Minnesota um, because of the way tribal enrollment works, because of the way that relocation worked and termination worked, and uh, um, Reservation to urban back to reservation migration in the 20th century because of changes in enrollment rules throughout the 20th century. We have all kinds of people within our tribal populations as we enroll them that have ancestry in many different tribes, right? And then have ancestry in other parts of the world. And so I find uh, this amazing ignorance about 20th century Native American history, um, and, and tribal policy that conditions, uh, if you want to use this, this genetic word, very admixed population. Um, and there's just complete ignorance about that. There must be. Otherwise, how can you possibly hope to find uh, a subject that has, you know, that is, that is pure to the degree that one is looking for in that particular population? Because they're looking for isolated populations. And Native Americans have not been isolated, I would argue, ever, mm. but certainly not post-contact.
0: It's fascinating that you identify uh, lingering uh, creation dimensions to probably to to, I would imagine most genetic scientists when asked would say they are firmly in the sort of evolutionary uh, camp uh, and that they take those lessons seriously. But I totally hear your point that uh, lurking behind some of their assumptions is something that seems akin to um, the concepts of, of the origins and the fall almost that has this vaguely sort of like Christian um, uh, creationist dimension to it.
1: Right. And also the proselytizing. I mean, yeah. the, the acting just like Christians. I was recently asked to write an article for Gene Watch for the Center for Society and Genetics um, out of uh, Berkeley on science and religion. And I think most people put those on two sides of a divide. But for me, Western science and and Judeo-Christian traditions are on one side and indigenous traditions are on the other. (laughs) Um, Because I find them similarly proselytizing, similarly universalizing in their worldview, whereas most of the indigenous traditions I've encountered are tolerant of... um, Multiple truths or multiple ontologies, multiple ways of knowing the world, and, and we don't tend to have to reconcile two disagreeing points of view. So, I work, for example, with Native American biological scientists. It's another ethnographic project I have, and what's really interesting about a lot of those Native scientists is they are fully capable of being in the laboratory and have in the laboratory and having a biological or evolutionary. Um, understanding of the world and then they are capable of going home and uh, being with their family or, or medicine people and having that understanding of the world and they quite often don't feel the need to reconcile those things. They can tolerate Um, A lack of reconciliation and and can say, look, there's multiple ways of understanding the world. They don't reconcile. We are okay with not understanding why. And I feel like in Western religion, I mean, I know I'm stereotyping, but this is what I see in the world of genetics and in Western religion and in Western science, there's a real intolerance for contradiction. Um, And that's where I see those, you know, in in pre-Darwin, most scientists were creationists, and they really have not left that behind to the degree that they think they have.
0: Fascinating. I apologize if I'm asking you to repeat yourself a bit from the question I asked you about uh, the metaphoric components of DNA, but I also wanted to ask you to, to explicate the the term material semiotic. Uh, you, you call Native American DNA a, a material semiotic, and I'm, I'm hoping you can tell us what you mean.
1: Right. I think material in terms of the the molecular structure, you know, we can measure it. We can we can see it with laboratory uh, techniques and um, instruments. So and in, in it's material, it's measurable, right? And that's what science is interested in. But it's also semiotic in terms of the kinds of stories and narratives that have conditioned the way that it gets researched and talked about. Um, You know, when we talk about uh, people talk about DNA being the fundamental unit of life, my goodness, really proteins are the fundamental unit of life. Um, So there's a lot of um, a lot of rhetoric. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, there's a a lot of narrative, a lot of uh, histories that that condition the way that we apprehend and talk about it, the way that we sample. So it's never just raw material. Humans have to learn how to speak about DNA and think about it, um, work with it in ways that are inside of our histories and the, and the dominant narratives of our, of our society. We don't do that outside of that, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So the concept and language of blood um, has a long symbolic and material uh, history uh, at large, as well as in Indian country and in federal Indian policy, uh, and it seems that there are both important entanglements as well as key differences between uh, this much older and much longer um, discourse of blood and the current fashion of DNA and genetic ancestry. I know it's a big question, one that you've, you've tackled in much bigger forms than I'm going to ask you to talk about now. But um, what are some of those similarities and differences uh, between that older concept, that longer concept of blood Uh, and DNA and to add another giant component to the question, where, where does race fit in to, to those two categories?
1: Um, the second question is harder. So Mm -hmm. let me, um, I, the, so the similarities in terms of blood and DNA symbolically, um, you know, most of American culture, I think has, has there, there I see a, a move, in the 1990s actually in popular culture from blood to DNA talk. Um, quite prominently in, in mainstream American culture, Native Americans, I think, are slower to make that transition because we still have a lot of blood talk that's integral to the way that we do enrollment, and we are beginning to engage in gene talk. But I feel like mainstream American culture has largely left blood talk behind in favor of DNA. And I think because they welcome this notion that there's more scientific precision, um, the blood groups were were tested and researched in a similar way. To the way that uh, molecules are are looked at today, and so there were efforts by scientists in the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, to try and categorize. Races according to blood groups, and it didn't work out because, like DNA markers, um, blood groups are found at higher and lower frequencies in different populations of the world. But there is no population or or racial group, as we define them, that has all one blood group or you know just a couple. Um, all races exhibit different blood groups, just at higher and lower frequencies. Um, so it wasn't useful in, in defining typological racial categories and they stopped doing that. But you see an effort now to do that, um, in, uh, DNA testing, you see scientists talking about the genetic component of race. There's an acknowledgement that, well, race is more than genetic. It's also socially constructed, but there is a genetic component. Let's see if we can find markers that will help us pinpoint that. Um, so, so they do share similarities, although I think we have moved on in mainstream culture to DNA, um, for tribes, it's interesting. I, I, I argue in the book that I think when people are talking about uh, blood quantum, you know, we know that the way that we calculate blood quantum is based on documentation. Nobody nobody ever says that you can go into a laboratory. and We never measure blood, the physiological substance, when we're calculating blood quantum. The calculations are all paper calculations. There's no laboratory work involved. And so in, in that way, The only way in which blood quantum is material is in terms of the paperwork, but um, blood, the substance is not involved. Um, but the, the symbology of, so of, of blood is really important. And this is a, a little bit of what I think has been left behind in mainstream culture, the way that we still talk about family by blood and tribe by blood. There's a sense of of connectedness. But I would argue that that word stands in for something much more than the physiological substance. Um, it, it's it's uh, a symbol that also involves social relations, um, so it's pretty complicated and I argue that I think we need more, although I don't want to do this but I think we need more ethnographic work when people invoke the term blood and blood relatedness and blood identity what really do they mean? What are they thinking of and symbolically and um, materially and we should not just assume they're being biological essentialists because I'm of the mind that most Native people are smart enough to know when they're involved enough in tribal enrollment criteria to know that this is about paperwork and paper fractions and this is not about blood the substance. Hmm. So I don't believe they're given credit for being as uh, for understanding it in as complex a manner as it's actually meant. Hmm. But I may not have answered your question completely.
0: No, but it, it certainly helped to get, get at these um, similarities and differences, which is um which is right. what I, was I think. Going
1: for the things I worry about with DNA is because it's measurable, because you can go into a laboratory and you can you can look at it through laboratory uh instruments, and, and we, we don't look at blood that way anymore in terms of ascribing identity, right? Hmm. Um I worry that the symbology of DNA is missed, that it's, well, well, DNA is the truth. That's what's real. And all that blood talk is just antiquated, old-fashioned racist talk. So for example, when, and I've seen a lot of people use this chart, the Bureau of Indian Affairs blood quantum uh, fractions chart. They have this chart in their enrollment manual. It's so patronizing, like tribal enrollment officers can't do basic fractions, but they give you this table of fractions. How do I calculate the blood quantum of a child based on its parents' blood quantum? And when when people use that, um, that chart in uh, academic talks, the audience always laughs. Oh, how racist and antiquated. And they think it's really funny. Nobody laughs when you put up molecular frequencies and, and DNA data. That's that's quite similar because people are like, well, that's DNA. That's right. real. That's actually scientifically precise. Um, it's riddled with many of the same problems. And it worries me that nobody laughs at it.
0: Right, right. So. I think that's why this book is, is so important. And I'm hoping it um, makes inroads in, in those very kinds of discourse productions. Um, the second chapter of your book uh, is entitled "The DNA.com uh, Selling Ancestry. And I was actually, when I was uh, originally looking for your book, uh, and I was Googling it, I, you know, I put in Native American DNA into Google, um, I had to first scroll through uh, 23andMe, Ancestry.com, National Geographic, Indians.org. Finally, I got down to the University of Minnesota Press. Don't worry, it's still on page one of the Google, Google oh, results page, but... But there are, there are immediately targeted ads uh, on the Google page uh, when you put in that search query. Even if I go deeper into the search query and I, I put in other things, I still get those ads. Um, so this is clearly, I mean, just from that anecdote, is, is, it's not a, an insignificant industry by any small degree.
1: And within the United States, Native American DNA is disproportionately popular as something that people are searching for. Wow. Okay. Yeah.
0: What is the actual process of testing? I mean, what does that look like when a person uh, stumbles on this website and decides, uh, you know, that they want to find out if the story their great-grandmother had supposedly told them was true?
1: Well, it's pretty low-tech on the consumer end, so you, uh, you know, pay online and they send you a little test kit, which is basically a test tube with a swab inside, or at least it was when I did it 10 years ago. And it's a Q-tip, basically a cotton swab, and you rub that on the inside of your cheek. I think you, you know, make sure your mouth is rinsed out so you don't get the DNA of the milk you just drank or something. Mm-hmm. And then you put it back in that test tube and you send it in and then you know, uh, maybe six weeks later, most of the companies I think now will put your results online. Um, they'll also send you certificates and results in the mail. But I know 23 Me is super high tech. I haven't tested with them, but they've got a really nice online, um, presence instead of, uh, information for people. So that's, you know, it's very easy if you can afford it, it's easy. And then when researchers are doing, um, uh, migrations research, they'll, they'll go in and do, um, blood draws usually because that gives them more material to work with in the lab and then gives them, uh, biological samples left over if they have consented for it for other research beyond the research that they're, they're drawing blood for at that moment. Hmm.
0: And then is there do the companies like 23 and me uh, then own some component of your genetic material, or, I mean, can they do with it what they please, or, or do you still have final say over how and, and when it gets used?
1: You know, I think it depends on the company. Um, I have deliberately not studied 23 and Me. There are a lot of peop- other people looking at that company, and it's, it's more complicated and interesting than some of these other companies because they're not only doing um, genetic ancestry inference, so pinpointing your ancestry in different parts of the world, but they're actually also looking at markers for medical conditions um, and doing all of that kind of wrapped up in one. Um, I don't know what their policies are regarding disposal of DNA or not. I would imagine that different companies give you different options um, in terms of whether they keep that DNA or whether it's destroyed. And I think particularly in the last five to 10 years, people have been becoming more conscious about These multiple levels of consent than they used to be because of all the um, resistance in the press, particularly by indigenous people and some others, that their their DNA not just be owned and controlled by the researcher that they want some say over what eventually happens to that.
0: Right. Right. So. Especially, there's also um, always in the news these court cases, which I can't really wrap my head around, and I imagine many others can't, about uh, whether companies can own genetic material that's inside of your body, whether there can be patents on genes. Um,
1: Yeah, well, the 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 courts have not been good in terms of the fundamental cases in in ruling uh, for the individuals who gave biological samples. Um, The the universities have been and uh, scientists have been uh, given more of those uh, property rights say when you go through the courts. Now, this is why you have a lot of uh, communities, indigenous communities, disease uh, research community see of these disease groups uh, they quite often are parents of children with genetic diseases, um, genetic conditions who start um, a research foundation and uh, start gathering data and, and, and developing their own data sets um, to have these diseases research. they're quite often rare diseases that perhaps the industry is not is interested in researching because there might not be a large profit to doing that so with with indigenous people and groups like that, you are seeing more now. Um, people setting up more rigorous uh, consent or relationships with scientists ahead of time that are laying out ahead of time what samples can be used for, who owns them, how they're controlled, and who gets access. Because, in fact, the courts haven't protected non-scientists to the degree that those communities want to be protected. So that's actually driven – innovations in bioethics and consent, which I think is a good thing. I mean, I think we need, we, need to, we need to keep stuff out of the courts because they are not going to rule in favor of Indigenous interests. We see that with other other uh, Indigenous claims as well. And, and we recently, uh, I think, heard the Native American Rights Fund NARF, say, do not go to the Supreme Court. I would say the same thing is true of, of genetics. I don't think you want to go to court. You want to um, develop your collaborative relationships and your guidelines ahead of time with scientists or the institutions you're working with because the courts won't rule in our favor.
0: Mm. Right. I mean, these are courts that are still using doctrines of discovery when trying to adjudicate land claims. Um, So you write about how uh, we've touched on how these kinds of testings uh, can come into play in uh, enrollment policy. Uh, But you say there are also broader implications um, that the marketing of DNA tests uh, can have and that they can even be uh, wielded. They can be ammunition. Uh, for anti-indigenous interests. What do you have in mind here?
1: Well, you know, I'm beyond the, well, it's actually, this is related to tribes doing across the board DNA testing. So, Again, this is a minority of tribes that are doing this. That, that you have these controversial enrollments, and in and in the cases where that happens, I don't actually think DNA testing is the core problem. I think monthly per capita payments based on casino revenues or other revenues are the core problem. And when you get large uh, large amounts of money that are at stake it, for individual tribal members, you start to see um, revisions to enrollment and disenrollments, and then DNA gets used in that. So if you if you go in and do an across the board DNA test, and this is parentage test, keep it keep in mind that tribes are using you are going to find false paternity or misattributed paternity in any population you're going to find some percentage of people that don't have the biological father they thought they did and if you're basing enrollment on lineal descent or that person's blood quantum you can go back and say well you know so and so wasn't really your biological grandfather all descendants are out you know um so so uh I'm sorry, I lost your original question. I was getting off on a tangent there. Oh
0: no worries. I was curious about what other ways, in which besides enrollment policy, that um, this industry can harm indigenous interests.
1: Right. Okay. So, so when things like that happen, that I just described, and that hits the press, we get this this sense that oh, uh, tribes are all using DNA testing. Um, they're, they're, uh, racializing their ancestry in the way, in the same way that we are. And so it contributes to, um, I think it contributes to an overall understanding of Native American identity as racial because the public and even scientists really, I think for the most part, And tribal communities themselves are not understanding the particular type of DNA parentage test that's being used at the tribal level. They're not distinguishing between that and genetic ancestry testing. So it doesn't matter that a parentage test used by a tribal government is really different than a genetic ancestry test bought by some guy who's a genealogist and wants to research his family tree and wants to find the Indian from 23andMe. They're very different technologies, but really most people, I don't think, understand that how different they are technically and they don't understand the politics of tribal enrollment. And if you're going to understand how, um, native American identity works within a political context in the U S you need to not only understand the genetics, but you need to understand Indian policy. Okay. So then more broadly, just all of this DNA talk, I think, um, Results in a genetic racialization of Native American identity in the eye of the public. I think it contributes to a transformation from blood talk to gene talk in Indian country as well. Um, and so I, you know, I worry about that based on the lack of both policy and molecular knowledge that that people need to understand how complex this situation is for tribes right now. Mm. So
0: related related to the boom in personal genetic testing uh, is genealogical research, which you just mentioned. Uh, You call it perhaps the most popular U.S.-American pastime. Do you think this obsession is something that is, at least for the moment, uniquely uh, U.S.-American, settler-American? And what do you think drives that?
1: You know, I think um, there are some things about the way this plays out in the United States that are, I think, unique to us. But you also see in Europe, for example, Oxford Ancestors is is a, a company founded by Brian Sykes, who's a, um, a geneticist, I think, at Oxford and um, in the U.K., And it's very popular there. But what you see um, is them trying to pinpoint ancestry in particular villages in England and then more broadly in Europe. So they're, because they're not an immigrant society to quite the extent that we are, although you could argue that they are increasingly with the, you know, colonial, former colonial subjects coming. But so they're looking for ancestry um, more regionally and at a village level, whereas Americans look for ancestry um, on one of the major continents in the world, because that is the way that we think about race and ancestry in this country. And it it tends to get broken down into four or five different dominant racial groups here. And depending on what country you are in, uh, race and racial groups and the numbers of racial groups are constructed differently based on that history. And then you will see the DNA testing companies reflecting those different kinds of racial and ethnic histories and the way that they name Tests the way that they circumscribe different panels of markers um, so in the if you look at uh, the uh, DNA uh, I think forget what the name of the test is now, but it 's an autosomal marker test. The company went on a business, and the test got bought by somebody else I think it 's a ancestry by DNA. Um, They would be looking, try to show you um, what percentage ancestry you had in Asia, what percentage you had in Europe, what percentage you had in Africa, what percentage you had in the Americas. Their tests had a hard time sometimes telling the difference between Asia and the Americas. Um, If you were to go down to Brazil, for example, you would probably get a DNA testing company that would be dividing their racial and ethnic groups differently because they don't construct race in the same way that we do. And you can, you know, manipulate and circumscribe markers in different ways to point back to these different... Different kinds of areas of the world, if you want. So,
0: that's fascinating.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. (laughs) really complicated and Mm -hmm. hard to get across in um, layman's terms. Sure,
0: sure. So, in your fourth Fourth, chapter, uh, you take up the um, genographic project, this five year research partnership launched by the National Geographic Society, IBM, as well, to uh, quote, trace the migratory history of the human species and map how the earth was populated. Uh, One of the most important interventions I think you make here, and you alluded to it before, is the very often repeated mantra that human genetics will deliver us from racism. That uh, if we can prove and show in the DNA and in our genealogy that uh, we're all descendants of the same population uh, from what is now Africa, uh, racism will be uh, finally laid bare as an anachronism, is not reflected in scientific reality. Uh, What's wrong with this view? What is this missing?
1: It's an interesting set of claims. So, um, my friend, Jenny Reardon has written, um, really incisively on this. I think she says that the the paradox of 21st century anti-racist genome research is that, um, that research simultaneously relies on these really undemocratic scientific practices. Um, so there, the research has, uh, you know, made ownership claims to Indigenous DNA and traditional peoples' DNA, and those those claims are defended by our legal institutions. Um, often, it turns out in violation. Um, although decreasingly so. You have, again, Indigenous people pushing back and and crafting better uh, consent arrangements. But historically, um, that research has been carried out to serve the needs of scientists and scientific institutions and not at all the needs of Indigenous peoples themselves. You also get those narratives that I talked about, these dominant narratives conditioning the kinds of questions that scientists ask um, and the way that they represent their data. So to go back to the out of Africa example, um, if Quite often, Genographic and and other companies and research projects will represent contemporary indigenous people or what they call traditional people as representing the ancient ancestors of modern humans. And so you see these popular scientific films and textbooks speaking to their reading audience or their listening audience. We need to sample indigenous or traditional people in order to find um, the way back to, to our origins and, and our people's stories. Well, who is the we that they're talking about? Modern people, who they, people they envision as modern, part of modern society who are consuming these texts. But But if you're making a distinction between we and them, Indigenous people, traditional people, living Africans um, are portrayed as the ancient, less evolved ancestors of other living people. And that usually refers to, you know, quite often white people or, or contemporary people in the West. So there is an active representation of indigenous people and, and Africans living people because they get pictures of them, they sample them. These are living groups, but they're portrayed as, as our ancient, less evolved ancestors. Um, so while 21st century genome science thinks that it's anti-racist and that it has left these old school notions of race behind. You still have 19th and early 20th century um, more racist notions and hi- hierarchies of race that continue to inform 21st century anti-racist genome research. And what happens is these older narratives and concepts get mixed up with late 20th century notions of multiculturalism and anti-racism. They get kind of mixed up all in the same soup. What then happens is it's, it's more difficult to work for those of us who are critical of this to pull apart the anti-racist threads and the old school race threads, because they're all mixed up together in these narratives. And then they inform, form um sampling practices and academic languages and so that's partly what i try to do in the book is is point out where you've got these older notions of race being mixed up with newer anti-racist rhetorics
0: yeah i was shocked for instance to find out how pervasive uh the vanishing indian trope is in some of this discourse uh i don't know I i guess i was naively shocked to some degree that many geneticists uh are insisting on harvesting harvesting blood samples i guess uh before, uh, and these are quotes, uh, indigenous peoples lose their identity and, quote, vanish. Um, This sounds like the salvage uh, anthropology of the late 19th century.
1: Yeah, where you go back to the 1600s and French naturalists were saying the same things. John uh, John Marx talks about that in some of his history of biological anthropology Mm -hmm. work. History of science is wonderful for this. If you go back and look at the history of anthropology and history of biological science in in Europe and the United States, from about the 1600s onwards, they've been they've been making these same claims for a long time. It's kind of funny, actually, in a really kind of vulgar way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we've been vanishing for 400 years. Really, the claims are no different now <laughs> than they were in 1650. It's kind of shocking. Yeah, um, I guess they need to read some history of science and it might make them a little bit more humble in those claims. But I think for them, we're vanishing because they're defining us genetically, right? And we define ourselves in these really complex ways that involve. Um, politics that involve culture, that involve policy, and that involve biological thinking to some degree. But all of that gets mixed up together in these really dynamic ways as tribal enrollment policy evolves. Um, and and geneticists, I think, are much more simple in in their definition. And that definition serves their science. But it really kind of conflicts with the way that we define what it is to be a tribal member or a Native American or, or you know, belonging to a particular tribal group. And given that their truths carry more cultural weight, we should be concerned about this. And given that people attribute more veracity to genetics than they do to a more complex uh, political identity, that's a real problem for us. And it's why Native people need to learn genetics and get involved in these conversations. We cannot fight on equal terms, unless we understand their language and advocate that they come to understand ours more Mm -hmm. because they're informing policy and they're informing what the the things that agencies decide that affect our lives and our lands and the claims that we make. Mm
0: -hmm. Along those lines, I guess this is, this is a book that uh, writes for and so clearly deserves an audience uh, that's includes, but is also beyond your particular academic disciplines or multiple disciplines. Uh, What impact uh, do you hope it has?
1: Well, I I tried to write for a broader audience, and I hope I was successful. My mom was the first person outside of the press, I think, to read the book cover to cover, and she she said, honey, I understood everything. And my mom is an is an educated layperson. I mean, she doesn't have a PhD, but she's a professional. And mm. I was happy for that. I mean, that's the audience I, I want to target. Um, I'm hoping undergrads can read it. I'm hoping, um, you know, again, people in tribal communities that I run with, so planners, um, uh, media people, uh, attorneys, uh, people in policy, uh, teachers, you know, I'm hoping that it, it reaches an audience like that. And that um, one of the other things is I really want uh, Native people to understand. And I think everybody to understand all of my students to understand that if we're going to tackle the most pressing problems that we have, we can't simply focus in one particular discipline or one particular area I mean for me the kind of research that I do and the approach that I have to these problems that one could classify as Native American studies or one could classify as science studies my approach is deeply conditioned by also having been trained as an environmental planner and a community planner it's conditioned by having grown up as the daughter of a planner and a, and a community institution builder and I am I feel like the approach that I have is more is is more theoretically sophisticated and yet it's accessible and yet it's also um carries re- relevant application applied relevance for people and i feel like it's um it- it becomes then a more robust, both theoretical and applied project if it's, if it's deeply multidisciplinary. Um, And so that's the, when I, when I develop classes and, and, and talk to students, I, uh, whether they're students in the university or whether they're people out in communities, I encourage them to never be afraid to cross radically different disciplinary boundaries. Um, That's the kind of knowledge, integrated knowledge we need to build to address the problems that we have. And so that's, I hope that the book not only, takes that approach itself, but it models it for other people in a way that's accessible to not only PhDs.
0: Do you think geneticists will, uh, will be able to hear it? Do you think they, they can handle, handle the interventions you're making here?
1: Well, one of the things that I've learned in doing this work for about uh, 12 years now is I focus on, they tend to be younger, but not always, scientists who I don't have to convert to my way of thinking. Um, I have found in general that younger scientists trained post-NAGPRA, Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, uh, for them, uh, tribal... Desires to control and govern genome science and remains as a fact of life, and they try to figure out a way to work with it. You have some of these old dinosaurs trained pre NAGPRA, they're still in the academy for, you know, DNA and bones. That's their right to own indigenous people who make any claims or interfering with science. I'm not going to bother trying to convert those guys. They can't be converted. I spend my energy on young scientists who are progressive thinkers who want to work collaboratively, and they're out there. And I invest my energies in mentoring and, and networking with young Native American and other uh, not just Native American scientists, but other scientists who want to work in collaborative ways, who want to do non-hierarchical science, who want to do more democratic science, who want to change. Because I believe that we need to also work within to change those fields. I mean, a bunch of scientists aren't going to listen to Kim TallBear, humanist and social scientist, and make these radical changes. So I, I really try to do my networking with um mostly younger, but just in general, progressive scientists who care about communities and who care about um, doing work that communities also want, and who also have a love for their science. I don't think these things are in opposition.
0: Mm. So I've been speaking with uh, Dr. Kim TallBear. She's Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Austin, Texas. I should also mention uh, it's the host institution, as far as I know, for the 2014 Conference of uh, the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association. Uh, She's also the author of this important new book we've been discussing. It's called uh, Native American DNA, Tribal Belonging and the False Promise of Genetic Science from the University of Minnesota Press. Uh, Before we conclude today, Dr. Talbert, I uh, I always feel sort of bad for asking this of someone who's just uh, completed the monumental process of publishing their book. But I also like to ask, uh, what are you thinking about next and if you have uh, future projects in mind?
1: Well, I have three projects. There you go. I am have been for a couple of years now doing an ethnographic project with Indigenous bioscientists. I've been interviewing and doing participant observation in the United States. I might move into Canada. And this was a move I was really demoralized uh, in researching scientists and scientific projects that I was not invested in. And being a good feminist scholar, I felt like I needed to do research in which I could be invested in the projects that I was critiquing. I needed to care for my subjects. And so I conceived of this uh, indigenous bioscience project. And so that's that's something I'm working on. I hope to get a couple of articles out of that. And that's resulted in me having all of these amazing professional networks now with young Native American bioscientists. And I kind of want to throw the ethnographic project out the window and just work on promoting their careers because I think that they're doing such wonderful things and I think they are going to help change the field. Um, So that's been a nice transition from my more kind of pessimistic earlier project. Um, I'm also hoping to go spend some time with the Pipestone Quarries at home in Minnesota and uh, look at the Pipestone Quarries from a policy angle, from a climate science angle, and from a cultural or spiritual angle. And so again, I want to demonstrate that one can understand the quarries and Pipestone from these kind of multiple disciplinary or uh, angles or worldviews, and it gives me time to spend at home. I was born in Pipestone, Minnesota. And then I'm planning a short book that's a series of more creative essays. Um, The theory will be woven in there, but they will be more story-like and creative, and I think I'm probably going to call it something like Indigenous Provocations. Um, And those will be... um, uh, essays on Indigenous contemporary Indigenous cultural politics. So I'm I'm trying to do my 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 more academic research and writing, but I'm also interested. I used to be a poet as well, and I'm interested in getting back to more kind of creative nonfiction type writing, and then tying theoretical threads within within narratives or stories that are more accessible to a broader audience as well. So I'm trying to straddle the academy and not the academy all the time.
0: Many exciting projects on the horizon.
1: Thank you. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time, Professor Tallbear. I've really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to a discussion with Kim Tallbear, author of Native American DNA, Tribal Belonging, and the False Promise of Genetic Science from the University of Minnesota Press. We're on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com, where you can hear all the past podcasts free of charge. We're also on iTunes, Twitter, and Facebook. And we rely upon you, the dear listener, to spread the word about this project and the incredible books that we feature here. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks so much for listening.